Welcome to another episode of A People's Theology. I'm the host of A People's Theology, Mason Meninga. In this episode, I talk with Tori Williams-Douglas. Tori is an anti-racist educator, podcaster, and writer. Also musically featured throughout this episode is Danielle Lynch. Danielle is a singer-songwriter from Australia. You can get connected with Tori and Danielle and their work in the links in the episode description. If you're a fan of A People's Theology, it would bring me no greater joy than if you gave the podcast a five-star rating and review. Tell me what you like about the podcast. Also, if you feel so inclined, please support my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Meninga. There are multiple tiers with wonderful rewards, including papers I write to even a book club. Enough of my rambling. Enjoy more inspiring and liberating theology. Today I have Tori Williams Douglas, and Tori is one of my favorite people in the entire world. Uh, and you do lots of things, Tori. Uh, you're an anti-racist educator. Uh, you're a mother. You are a wonderful sister. And at this point, you probably could be considered a naturalist. Uh, and so there's so many things that you do. But who is Tori Williams Douglas to Tori Williams Douglas? I, this version of myself is so interesting. Like, I love that you asked this question of everybody, like right off the bat, because it's like, there's all these versions of myself that I haven't, haven't met yet. Mm. And it's really interesting. I mean, I think that right, yeah, right now is like such a strange time, right? Because I feel like we're, we can't go anywhere. And so we're just sitting with ourselves all day. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I mean, I like, I really like who I am, but I don't, I don't know, like what kind of labels I'm supposed to use to describe myself. I really like being me. Mm. And I mean, in terms of like how I identify myself, like out in the world, I mean, that, I feel like that changes basically day to day. Um, what, well, what do you have yeah. for, for me today then? Mm. Okay, so today I am a writer. Mm. <laughs> um, l- last year, I think, somebody reached out to me about writing a white homework book. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah, I want to do this, but also ADHD and there's a million other things that I want to do first. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, then Lenny Duncan kicked my ass and was like, that's just what, write a couple of chapters. That's, that's, that's his profession, is ass that is what That is what I guess it's, yeah, Rev Lenny, that's his profession. Um, and he was like, just write a couple of chapters. He's like, you already have it written. He's like, it's already in your Google Docs. You just have to like pull it out and like put it all in one place. I was like, oh, fuck you, you're right. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I'm like kind of cruising along, writing some chapters now. Hey, love that. Yeah. Well, when when it gets published, you know what we're gonna do. We're gonna be chatting all over again. Oh, I'll make sure you get a like early release copy. Wonderful, wonderful. So you can review it. So speaking of you know currently writing a book, there are so many things that you've done over the past couple of years since the last time you've been on the podcast, and obviously we've remained in in touch. We're really good friends. Um. 
So at the time that we last talked, you were working in a neuroscience lab, correct? Yeah. And so, but so much has changed since then. So tell me a little bit about what's happened in the last couple of years since we last chatted on the podcast. Okay. Um, Yeah. So I was working in a neuroscience lab and um, that was, that was amazing. Actually, this is a complete aside, but for people who care, which might be a couple of people, my boss uh, in the lab, Dr. Damien Fair, just got a MacArthur fellowship. Mm, MacArthur not, Genius John, Grant. not John MacArthur. John MacArthur. Do I don't know. Ma- that might be that might. No, not that guy. Not oh, that one. Oh, no, okay, he okay. got like, he got like $600,000 to do more research, more like neuroscience research. So there's like this big, it's like kind of like the Nobel prize, but for people who aren't war criminals, <laughs> <laughs> such a jackass. Oh my gosh. Um, so yeah, I transitioned from doing that to doing white homework work full time. Um, so I basically spend my time talking to people about like how to be anti-racist and, um, how to unlearn white supremacy and coming from a neuroscience kind of background at this point, it's, I really try, I try really hard to work um, and to speak in ways that keep people's nervous systems from like coming online, mm. right? Because people have a tendency and like white folks, I feel like have a tendency to get either there's like this shame guilt response mm-hmm. right, on one side. And then there's like this super defensive, like, no, 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 don't talk to me on the other. And so I try to be really intentional in the way that I word things because, you know, because of like, all the incredible research that I was exposed to, um, to kind of make sure that I can work around those defense mechanisms that, you know, our bodies just naturally have. Um, yeah. So writing, doing workshops, like leading all kinds of trainings. Um, there was, looking at my calendar I'm like how do I have stuff like in April of next year like that's so bananas to me so anyway um yeah but just white homework podcast I don't know if there are so many things it's Mm -hmm. like apparently I'm turning this into some kind of like mini media empire or something I don't even know what's (laughs) happening anymore (laughs) it's out of my control I love that. Uh, so let's let's dive into white homework a little bit more, uh, and we'll talk about the body stuff in a little bit. But uh, what exactly is white homework? Well, white homework started um, basically. I get really mouthy on Twitter, and I would have all of these white folks who would like slide into my DMs and be like, "Hey, Tori, I love what you're doing. I love everything that you're saying. What am I supposed to do about racism?" And you know, I can answer that question if I know you. Be like here's some margin in your life. Here's some, some ways that you can spend your privilege. I mean, I can assess that really quickly if you're somebody that I know, but if you're not, I, I like, are we going to go out to coffee three times so that I can like, assess? it just wasn't a great use of my time. So what I ended up doing was creating these little modules so people could go and do the work themselves. They could figure out like what kind of margin they have, what kind of influence they have, um, learn about the ways that racism plays out in, you know, their state or county or in their industry or, you know, their employer. Um, And really giving people the tools to like unlearn 
their own ignorance essentially um and empowering them to like do that on their own because again like I don't have you know I don't have the bandwidth to sit down with like every single white person (laughs) to to walk them through this even though people who are sincere like I love doing that work um it just isn't it just isn't like a time effective thing Mm -hmm. for me (laughs) to do um so yeah and then with that uh turn into a podcast um so just talking about race racism restorative justice um and that's been that's been really really cool and yeah hopefully a book next year or the year after seems like you're already in the progress of it yeah Obviously, kind of the world of anti-racism has sort of become a hot topic for a variety of different reasons, one of which being the recent protests over this summer. Uh, And then also, like, the right wing has this sort of scapegoating of the critical race theory and that kind of world. And so it's sort of become in the limelight for a variety of different reasons. Um, So how do you see your work in White Homework kind of breaking through the trend of anti-racism as just being a, uh, just simply that as a trend for white people? Um, How do you sort of break through that being a trend and where you're able to make some substantial change uh, in systemic racism? Um, So what I do specifically with White Homework is I want people to create an anti-racism plan Mm. right so um you know one of one of my good friends because we're close uh obviously pre-covid we we would just get together at the beginning of the year she would say this is like my this is my plan this is how much i plan to like give to these organizations um you know and like do you think and this is how much i plan to like do free coaching for women of color um things like that. And so we would just kind of like sit, chat, eat lunch and talk about what she was actually going to execute on. Mm-hmm. And then she had like, she's got this built in. So when she's starting out like her new fiscal year or whatever that looks like, um, she already knows, like she knows what her goal is. She knows she can keep track of like whether or not she's staying on target. Um, and so that's kind of, and that's really what I encourage people to do, whatever they're space is i mean even even with like being a mom right it's like okay so make sure that you're buying or buying books or checking out books from the library for your kids that have diversity in them right not Mm -hmm. just like Mm -hmm. white kids and animals but actually have some representation um and you know talk about skin color and don't like don't make it weird like they're very they're very like kind of actionable things that people can do and I try really hard with white homework to make sure that I'm like I want you to be able to measure your own progress um this isn't like a feel good like oh I did I did the course like check it off the list going on my merry way because like again we're dealing with a systemic problem and taking a course that 
doesn't cut it. Like that's not going to change mm-hmm. systemic issues, but finding out ways that you can use your own privilege in your own life with the people that you know, um, that I think has a lot more staying power. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And what I love about that is I think there's especially a tendency, especially among white people, especially among Western white people who really want to stay within their minds and keep this into their headspace. They really want to keep the uh, the concept of anti-racism as this abstract concept of talking just about the history of race or talking about, you know, legislation or whatever, like some sort of um, abstract uh things. And what I love about white homework is exactly what you're mentioning with how actionable and concrete these are. Uh, These really are the sort of things where you can put it on your fridge and check it off uh, Mm -hmm. and figure out how or in your calendar or whatever it might be. But they're they're literally quite literally that actionable, which I think is extremely, extremely helpful for people, for white people who Mm. really want to stay in that headspace of just thinking about race in abstract ways. Yeah, absolutely. And I I think that um, within like Western or like white culture, you know, however you define that, um, having a to-do list is you know, it's close to godliness. I don't know. <laughs> like it's not cleanliness. Like that's not your thing apparently. <laughs> but, um, I think that this is what works for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, because we live in, you know, we live in a capitalist society and I'm going to go, go, go and like do all of the things. And so sometimes like what you're supposed to be doing is just listening right? Exposing yourself to different ideas, but having something where you can go, okay, this is what I am going to do. Like this, these are my goals for this year. I can keep track as I'm moving through the year um, and making sure that I'm like hitting these targets, whatever they are. Right. And again, I I don't know, like for some people, it's going to look very, very different. Um, You know, I have friends who are white friends who are disabled. And so their activism is mostly online. Right. And so they engage with like right-wing alt-right trolls um, and try to have like actual conversations with, with people where I could never do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, like, that's just not, this is, it's not a good use of my time. It's not, it's like, it's just, yeah, my nervous system is not cut out for that work. Um, you know, I can, I can send off a zinger, right. But I'm not going to have a conversation with right. you, but that's what they do. They actually go and engage with people who they might be able to kind of pull back from that edge. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so everybody's work looks different. Um, right. So if you're disabled and you're a stay at home mom, you still, there's still work to do. Um, but if you run your own business, like, hello, call me, like we need to talk because there, you know, you can build these structures and changes into your life. Um, it's not just kind of a one-time thing. Mm -hmm. You sound like the youth pastor of anti-racism, I just have to say. Just oh like, gosh. here's the application points, kids. That makes me so happy. You know what's so funny is I, I thought for a long time, because I love doing education, but I thought for a long time that I was going to end up being like a youth pastor because that was the space that I was in and I could really see myself doing something like that. And so I love that it's it's, I'm still doing education. It's just not... That's not true. I think most of the people I work with are church people. So, right. 
or yeah, former <laughs> church people. So let's talk a little bit about kind of that neuroscience lens that you bring to all of this, which I think is extremely, especially for white people, extremely important. Um, some of the most formative anti-racism work that I've gone through has really focused not exclusively on like, again, the sort of abstract systematic racism work uh, stuff that's going on, but yeah. also how white supremacy in particular manifests in white bodies. So mm-hmm. can you talk a little bit about how white homework is uh, trying to address the white supremacy that exists uh, even in the physical bodies of white people? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think that there's, there's, a couple different ways without getting like too deep into anything. Um, so one is one of the ways that white supremacy kind of just sort of saturates everyone, almost everyone who lives in this culture um, is through the images that we see. Right. Mm-hmm. So we don't see, we don't see images in any kind of equitable way. Right. And we also don't see people in any kind of equitable way or space because we live in a country that is self-segregated at this point. Um, and so when you grow up from like infancy all the way to college and you're not really interacting with people of color ever, and certainly not in leadership positions, certainly not um, like your pastor or the librarian at your school or, you know, like you're not seeing black and brown faces in these roles, like that has a measurable effect on who you will become as an adult um, because that's just how our brains work. I mean, from, from the moment we're born, like our neurons are trying to make these shortcuts because that saves a lot of energy and your brain uses most of the energy in your body, right? It's like 25% of your, of like your basal metabolic, right? So like the calories that you burn on a daily basis is like used by your prefrontal cortex. It's, it's wild, right? So your brain has to come up with these ways to make these shortcuts. And so this is why we're so, this is why as individuals we're all so incredibly biased is because our brain is trying to save energy by not doing work, right? And it was great, it was we're a perfect so system. so lazy. Well, okay, so this was, this was great <laughs> for, uh, like from an evolutionary perspective, this was really good. That you didn't have to have like a whole body, you know, you like see, you see a tiger, and you're, you're the closest lunch, like not having to sit and like, do like, okay, I'm gonna do some risk analysis. And I'm going to like, try to calculate, like, what are my odds if I go this way versus that way? Like your nervous system can do that in a split second. And so now we have these nervous systems that were, that evolved to have these split second reactions, right. To situations that we see as dangerous and again, like the lack of equity in representation, most of the black faces and bodies that white kids see growing up are sports. So people who are huge and moving super, super fast, mm-hmm. um, mug shots on the news, mm-hmm. right? And like bad guys in movies. Mm. So your brain is making all these shortcuts constantly. And the shortcuts that it's making with black faces, because you don't have good experiences with black people. You don't, you don't have any experiences with black people. <laughs> so your brain's making these shortcuts of like, okay, if I see a black man, it's like superhuman strength, dangerous, like gonna, you know, gonna come after me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, probably breaks the law, probably does drugs, like all of these little, you know, it, it's stereotyping and people, you know, people 
for a long time, when I was growing up, I heard people say stereotypes are based, you know, stereotypes are based in reality, essentially. Like there's some truth to stereotypes. People would always try to mm-hmm. make this argument. And when you look at, when you look at what your brain is doing, like that almost makes sense, right? It's like your brain has created these connections without your knowledge um, that just associate bad things with black and brown people, because those are the interactions that you have with black and brown faces. Um, so yeah, your nervous system is going to get super, super activated in certain situations where it's like, oh shit, I saw this in a movie. Like a black guy comes and like mugs this lady or whatever. Um, which is not like, that's not necessarily what's going to happen, but your nervous system doesn't know that it has, it's like, it has to be pre-programmed to have a response in an instant because otherwise I'm going to (laughs) die. So, you know, our nervous systems are not rational. Like, let's just, let's just get that out of the way. But yeah, like white supremacy absolutely is like, it saturates our brains and our bodies in measurable ways, like in quantifiable ways. And um, the good news is like neuroplasticity is a thing and we can unlearn all or most mm. of the white supremacy that we absorbed as kids growing up. So how does white homework do that? How does it make that unlearning happen? Mm. Um, so one of the, one of the best ways to, to replace negative like connections in your mind, right? So if you're just like blackface dangerous, like those two things go together automatically. Um, one of the fastest, easiest ways to replace those negative connections is to have positive experiences around those people. Mm. Right. And, you know, uh, like there are, legitimately I have white women come up to me frequently and they say, you know, I was just raised in a suburb and I was, you know, taught that like black guys were going to mug me or they were rapists or whatever. Like I was just taught to be afraid of them. I don't have any reason to be afraid of them. What am I supposed to do? Um, and yeah, that's like, all. that's always my advice is, well, you have to replace those connections, those shortcuts with something positive. Mm. Right. Because they're not just going to go away on their own. Like it does take it does take some action on your part. Um, And if you are not if you're like legitimately not in a situation where you could ever like see black and brown people like you live in the middle of nowhere and, you know. You just it's like there's only white people out here, like my county is ninety nine point seven percent white or whatever. Okay, that's fine. That's 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 not an excuse because you can still have these, you can still play out these interactions in your head. Mm. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, You can be intentional about like the media that you're consuming and bringing like positive voices um, from like black and indigenous people, from Muslim people, from LGBTQ people who are people of color, like from disabled folks, you can replace those negative connections quite easily which is really which I think is really cool like it doesn't it doesn't it's not like you're sentenced to be a white supremacist for the rest of your life just because you happen to be born in a suburb right um we actually have a lot of agency in creating positive circumstances interactions and eventually those shortcuts
One of the things that I find really interesting about your your work in anti-racism, your work with white homework, is that uh, a lot of it really has been impacted by your background in Christianity. Mm -hmm. Um, And so can you talk a little bit about your experiences in Christianity and how it led you to this world of anti-racism work? And uh, how how do you sort of think about your faith now? And whatever that faith, however you define it, however you think about it, how does that kind of faith now influence and shape the work that you're doing? Mm, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so I was raised um, going to evangelical churches. Um, I grew up in Portland, Oregon. It's a very white city. The churches that I went to were extremely white. Um, and, you know, so I was I was at church more often than Jesus, as I like to say. And <laughs> I really sincerely believe, you know, when the pastor said, like, love your neighbor as yourself, I was like, yeah, 100%. Like, I am on board with that. Um, and like care for we're like we're called to care for the poor like hell yeah like i'm i'm poor right now but like i am all the way on board with like it's like i'm here to be generous i i fully bought into that mm. <laughs> so um once like fast forward to ferguson and michael brown being murdered and all these pastors that i'd known my whole life were now on facebook talking about like oh the wages of sin is death and like you know if you don't, it's like just doing all this like religious preaching and there was no, there was no grace. There was no understanding. There was no attempt even to understand. It was just this very binary black, white. He's the bad guy. The cop's the good guy. That's at the end. And I was like, oh, okay. So this, this is very different from what the sermons that I heard you preach as a little girl. Like Mm -hmm. this is very, very different. So you're telling me that like you were lying this whole time or like what, what was going on here? Um, and so that was a, a huge turnoff, <laughs> as you can imagine. And so I kind of started leaving, like at the, that was kind of the point where it was like, okay, I don't know that like Christianity is for me, or at least like not this flavor of Christianity. Mm. So, you know, um, I, I, you know, checked out some historically black churches in Portland, which was really, really cool. And those spaces are full of amazing people. Um, and I eventually got to the point where I was just like, eh, I don't really need this mm. um, in my life. Like it was really hard to find spaces that were run by people of color and also affirming, which is like such a gutting thing for me to say. But again, Portland, it's super white. Like there just, there just aren't that many choices. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm very, again, shout out to Lenny. Like, I'm very grateful that he's actually starting a church here in the Portland area that is like led by a black queer pastor, um, and creating that community that I really Mm. wanted, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. like six years ago. Um, and so like, that's something that I'm just super grateful for at this point. Um, but yeah, I still work with, I mean, probably 50% of my work is with churches and faith mm-hmm. communities, um, in terms of like the anti-racism and white homework. Absolutely. Like it's, yeah, it's a full like 50% of the people that I work with. And I love it because churches already have a lot of the structure in place to like functionally love your neighbors, like to mm-hmm. love your neighbors in ways that make a positive impact in their lives. Not just, Oh, I love you. Pat you on the back. Like, I'm going to pray for you. You got this buddy. Right. But saying, okay, this is, these are the tangible ways that I'm going to show up for you. Right. Whatever that looks like. Um, 
So I like, that's why I love, that's why I love working with churches. Cause they already have that kind of model in place. It's just, you had, you just have to make a couple of tweaks essentially. And you're there. Um, in terms of my, like my current faith, like I don't identify as a person of faith at all. Um, science Mike is always like, well, meditation is a spiritual practice. And like going out and looking at the stars is a spiritual practice. I'm like, I love you so much. And I don't disagree with that at all. I think that it's really, really sweet. And like, that's, that's what I did for my birthday. It was, I like went to the coast, mm. no lights anywhere. and just like stared at the stars while like listening to the waves. And it was it was, it was a spiritual experience. I'm not, I'm not going to deny that at all. Um, I just don't necessarily like have a deity or deities that I kind of connect those spiritual mm -hmm. experiences to basically. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Let's dive into that outdoors, uh, spiritual space. Uh, yeah. so I know that you, I, like, you know, in the last couple of years that we've known each other, uh, you know, maybe before, and I just was unaware of it, but uh, you, it seems like you've increasingly become more of an outdoorsy, again, kind of a naturalist, if you yeah. will. Uh, so can you talk about how like being in nature can help heal the trauma uh, of racism that people of color experience? And can you talk about how being in nature can also help uh, white people through their own white supremacy and uh, their own racism? Yeah. Um, that, I love that question. Uh, so yes, I have over the last couple of years, I, I, I've like, I get to the point where I'm kind of, I kind of feel weird about it. Like my, my whole hiking is just my personality now. <laughs> hiking is my gender. Um, so <laughs> yeah, like I have like very recently, um, become a huge kind of like outdoorsy person. And honestly, the reason that this happened was because of neuroscience, because I was reading all these papers and like listening to all these, um, listening to all of these neuroscientists talking about like the effect that um, kind of green space has on your nervous system. Mm. And so for me, I was just like, wait a second. Okay. If this is, if this is something that is going to have like a measurable, again, positive impact in my life, I should I should take advantage of that. And like, I love being outdoors. I love walking. Like I'll walk freaking anywhere. Um, and so other than that one time that we got stuck in the snow, that was really shitty. <laughs> Mason. Oh my gosh. Um, so we, uh, don't ever yeah, come so to Minnesota, like, by the way, if that's, if that was your <laughs> shittiest experience. No, it wasn't my shittiest experience. Oh, well. It was just a shitty experience. Oh. Mostly because it messed up my mascara. <laughs> Um, priorities, Terry. Priorities. Yes, true. Very true. Um, yeah. So being, I've made a point to spend as much time as I can. Like, obviously, being in Portland, like there's hiking trails everywhere. I mean, you can't you you can barely like throw a rock and not hit a, a hiking trail somewhere. So um, I've been pretty intentional actually about that, and I love it. It's a like hiking especially is like a time and a space for me to um meditate um active meditation in case anybody's going to like send me emails you don't have to um and i yeah like i love being in those spaces and kind of sitting and thinking about like that's the time for me to think about my ancestors right that's the time to think about like um the indigenous people who 
originally cared for the land that I am on and, and still are the caretakers of that land um, in every way they possibly can be. Um, yeah, it's just, it's a really important practice for me. And, you know, realizing like, oh, okay, going out and like being outside and just being in nature again, it's like my resting heart rate drops like mm-hmm. every time mm-hmm. I go camping. Um, and so it's, it's had a really positive impact on my life. And um, I've been trying to donate more to organizations that help black folks get outside because yeah, like, oh my gosh just buying a tent and like a decent sleeping bag, like that's a lot of money. And so um, I've been trying to like support a lot of like black outdoors and, and indigenous outdoors um, groups, because I think that it's really important um, for people of color, for, I mean, for all people, like, let's just be honest again, like our nervous systems were not designed to be sitting in rooms all day, right? Mm -hmm. For tens of thousands of years, every single night, you were under the stars or under like a canopy of trees. And the last thing you saw was like a fire going down like tens of thousands of years. That's how it was for humanity. So this really kind of brief window where we went from like living outside literally (laughs) to being inside all the time. Um, Yeah. Like we, like that, our nervous systems did not evolve for that to be like, where we spend our time. And, and, um, this is, oh my gosh, I'm such a, I'm such a nerd. Um, so one thing that is really interesting is that, um, when you look at housing projects, um, housing projects that have green spaces have significantly less, uh, 911 calls There's significantly less like neighbor conflict like neighborly conflict Mm -hmm. um like people are significantly less stressed and they've been able to do studies on this because um interestingly well i mean shockingly uh chicago has housing projects and this is very common like this is common all over the u.s where they would do housing projects and they would they would make them they would destroy um mixed communities like mixed race neighborhoods and build housing projects that were segregated and the white housing projects um, because there was just, it wasn't worth it for, for builders to build homes for families. So the government was like, well, we have to do this. Um, The white housing projects got green spaces and the black housing projects did not. And just, and so they've been able to like look at that data and also um, looking at data from housing projects where they have put green spaces in right Mm. where they've actually taken like torn the concrete out and like replaced that with with a green space has a massive massive like positive measurable positive impact it's it's wild like there was um i don't remember what city this was in um this may have also been chicago but there was like this empty lot and so some some researchers were like hey let's see if the city will like let us turn this like lot into a park, right? It's just a city block, like whatever. It's not going to be that much money. We can get funding for it. Um, Cause we're doing research and like, yeah, within a year, the number of shootings that happened like around that city block had gone down like double digits. Wow. Wow. Right. 
we're, we're not designed to constantly be in buildings and like on concrete, like this, mm-hmm. our nervous systems just don't function very well in those spaces. Like we have to be able to get outside and, um, not just outside, but like in nature. Mm-hmm. And so I think that, yeah, I absolutely encourage everybody, but obviously, especially people of color to like, whatever that looks like, even if it's just taking a walk around the block or like walking through a little city park, you know, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. I said, if that's, if that's what you have access to, like, yeah, it makes a measurable positive difference. It also increases your like killer T cell, your killer cells. So your immune system is actually better if you spend time, <laughs> if you spend time like in nature. And I, I, I don't know. It's like, there's so many positive, um, outcomes for everybody. And I think that, yes, like for white folks being in those spaces and like spending that time unlearning white supremacy, like that's, that's awesome. Like I can't think of a better way for white folks to spend their time, frankly. Today I have Danielle Lynch and uh, Danielle, we have uh, chatted before and I really appreciate your music. I also really appreciate your, uh, your theology of music even. Uh, your book a couple years ago was one of my favorites of the year and uh, I still even sometimes go back to it every now and then when I'm writing some of my own seminary papers. So it's quite great. But you're also a musician and you write wonderful music and you recently released a new album. Uh, you know, it was just a few weeks ago now. Uh, what's it been like to kind of, uh, you know, get that thing out and and let the masses listen to it what, what's that whole process been like for you it feels very weird to think that people all over the world are now listening to my music <laughs> I, one of my songs was used at a conference last week a women's church conference here hosted in australia oh, and the uk theologian the catholic theologian tina Beatty was the, the keynote presenter and one of the things she said about giving childbirth was that my private parts are now my public parts and I feel very much, you know, you, when you put music out in the world, it, you kind of expose a little bit of your soul or something, mm-hmm. and it, it feels very personal. And so when people around the world, they're sending me messages saying, you know, I danced with this song or I cried with this song. Mm-hmm. And what did you mean when you wrote this one or what were you thinking? And it feels very much like an exposure to the world. Mm-hmm. Are, you, are you the kind of person that's like a little bit like weirded out by a little bit of that exposure? Or is it something you just eat right up and you're like, this is great. I, I love, uh, I love uh, people knowing that, uh, you know, my inner self is out there. Uh, it feels a bit weird. It feels, I, I think normally I wouldn't be come across in such a personal way. I think music does it in a particular way. So it's interesting. And I, I think for, for music, it can be what it can be to different people in different mm-hmm. ways. So just releasing the music means something to someone else. That's, that's cool. But mm-hmm. for me, I, I don't necessarily think that what I was thinking when I wrote it should be carried across to everyone else's experience. Right, right, right. Well, one of the things that uh, I find interesting is, you know, it's been a little bit since 
you have released new music and you know so much of the world has changed since then and i maybe even for you yourself have changed uh can you talk a little bit about ways in which you've changed personally and how you may or may not have talked a little bit about that in the lyrics of some of the new music yeah i think the world is changing very quickly at the moment uh, i didn't write a song for 10 years or more than i when i left school i was playing in a few bands we were writing a few songs and I had a little collection of original songs and I think I had a bit of a crisis of confidence. <laughs> uh, I got rid of all of my songs. I have no record of any of the songs we wrote back when I was at school. And so I didn't write for another 10 years or more then. And then I got a few people encourage me along the way, say, oh, you know, you should go back to it. And eventually I did. In 2017 was when I wrote the first song, which is now on the album, Sophia. And I wrote it because in, in my work as, as a head of RE, religious education I was encouraging people the teachers in school to to allow the students to be creative with scripture and what it means for them and Mm -hmm. I thought that I should really demonstrate the process if I'm gonna encourage others to allow students to do that then you know really I should put myself out there as well so I wrote Sophia for that session and since then each of the songs has been a particular inspiration or something along the way and I think the way that I've changed is probably that I, I feel like a, a song doesn't have to be a masterpiece anymore. You can throw a song out into the world and it might speak to someone. And if it does, then that's great. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't have to be the world's best song. It just has to have something that resonates with that person. Mm-hmm. And so I think I got over a bit of the fear of what if it's not good enough? What if it's not this or that or the other? So there's mm-hmm. no fixed, fixed things that a song should be. And I think that's how I've changed and that's what allowed me to release the album otherwise I think I would always have stayed within that fear of of not being good enough to write the songs or to put the music out in the world Mm -hmm. when I was listening to the very first song on the album you know it's it's quite delicate it's got that classic singer-songwriter vibe and then all of a sudden the second song starts and it's like almost like this rock and roll rockability song can you talk a little bit about what you were sort of wanting to explore sonically in this album, uh, maybe versus some of the other stuff that you've written in the past? Definitely. I think for, for this album, I wanted there to be something for everyone in here. So whatever your particular favorite genres or types or styles of music is, or whatever your kind of the themes you're drawn to are. So in, in the styles, obviously, you, everything from the kind of pop punk in truth to a bit of country style to, towards the end and the kind of very rock pop um, in the second song. So, yeah, I, I started with Into Silence because that was the first song I recorded. And it's a, a very prayerful, as you say, it's, it's a recontextualization of the Lord's Prayer. Mm-hmm. And I started with, with prayer and I, it, the album finishes in prayer. But beyond that, it's also just about life's experience. And I think if there's one thing you can say about life, it's that it's unpredictable and it's messy and it goes through all the different emotions and experiences. So I think that's why I I wanted to throw in Grow Up as a second song to immediately destabilize that kind of um, peaceful aura that the first song creates. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I know with COVID, you know, there's just so many restrictions and everything, but uh, I would imagine Australia is doing quite better than the U.S. when it comes to uh, the state of the pandemic. Is there any anticipation to, you know, play this at a few coffee shops or are you hoping to play this live at all at any point, maybe even after COVID uh, sort of dissipates? 
I currently have no plans whatsoever. We're just coming out of lockdown in Melbourne. We've had a week of zero cases, which is wow. amazing. But we can't travel across state borders and we are restricted still in Melbourne to 25 kilometre limits and only just opening cafes and restaurants. So we're in a position where really plans can start to be made, but there's no, no real plans. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was presenting at the, the Women as Church conference and it, that was all electronic, all on Zoom. I think a lot of our conferences were other places that probably I would be presenting this sort of thing in my work is theology and music is theology would be where I'd be presenting them, but they're going to be electronic, I think, for at least the next year or so. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, hopefully hopefully one day we'll get to present. I have a friend in Brisbane who's launching an album in a month, and that can go ahead live because Queensland are in a different position to Victoria. But I think hopefully one day we'll get back to some sort of normality with music. I think there's something special about the live experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Well, I really appreciated the album. Uh, I, I'm glad that our friendship has been able to, you know, maintain over these last couple of years. And that I know you, you know, even back then when we were talking, you were talking a little bit about, you know, writing some new stuff. And so I'm glad that it's all out and uh, you get to just sort of, uh, again, like a child, you get to just let it go out in the world and, you know, see where it goes. And so uh, thank you so much for sharing some of your music. All right. Thanks, Mason. I know you probably don't necessarily consider your work to be theological, but I am curious, how do you see your work being inspiring and liberating spiritual work? Mm. Um, I mean, I do, I guess in a way I do kind of see my work as theological. I mean, I end up, you know, I end up preaching a lot on Twitter. <laughs> Sometimes. I'm like, I like, I'll straight up pull out Bible verses and be like, yeah, let's talk about this. Um and it, it's not like, it's not, I, I don't have like an antagonistic relationship with faith, right? Or w- even with Christianity, it's really white evangelicals that I want to mm-hmm. kick in the ass. Um, so my work is, I feel like, I mean, I think that people can kind of take it and use it like the way that they need to. But for me, I guess like, my spirituality or my morality, right. Is like, love your neighbor. That's literally what I was taught growing up. I just mm-hmm. happen to actually believe that that's a thing that we should do when we can. Mm-hmm. Um, so I mean, yeah, like I kind of build my entire, like everything that I do with white homework is built around this idea of like, when Jesus said, love your neighbor, I think he meant that shit. So what does that look like? And giving folks a much more inclusive vision of who is my neighbor, right? Mm. If I live in a space that's mostly white, who was kept out of this space? Mm. Who's prevented from accessing this space? Um, Again, like whose land am I on? Um, So 
I think that, yeah, like ultimately my, my work is rooted in, in harm reduction. And it's, again, it's like, it's really no different than, than MLK said, right. Is when he's talking about like the beloved community, it's, you know, it's the same work. It's the exact same work. Um, and I share values with many Christian people who are also committed to caring for their neighbors and, and harm reduction. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, if that's, if that's what you care about, then yeah, we're on the same team. Mm, I love that. Uh, last question. How can listeners get connected to you and your work? Um, I'm, I'm on the internet a lot, so, uh, that's probably the easiest way. <laughs> Either outside or on the internet. One of the two. <laughs> right? Those are the only options. <laughs> God damn it. Um, so yeah, I'm on, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at white homework. And also my personal at is at Tori glass, T O R I. Um, you can go to Tori to kind of check out some of my work and then whitehomework.com um, is my Patreon and you can get, you know, early access to, to podcast episodes there. So Perfect. Well, thank you so much for chatting, Tori. You are not only an excellent and brilliant and compassionate anti-racist educator, but you're such a darling friend. So thank you so much for your friendship and thank you so much for the work that you do in the world. Thanks, Mason. If you would like to connect with Tori and Danielle and their work, you can find links in the episode description. Thank you again for listening to another episode of A People's Theology. If you liked what you heard, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. Also, please support the podcast at my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Menega. And remember, friends, go and be the theology to the world that inspires and liberates. Help us to share